So here we are, Christmas Eve, on the very doorstep of perhaps the largest cultural celebration of the year, season that not only Christians celebrate, but also people who are not Christians, people who are not followers of Jesus, people, in fact, who are not even religious will celebrate to some degree. It's a season which often brings the best out of us, a spirit of generosity, of, of giving, of charity, of togetherness, of family, a spirit of hope and renewal at this darkest time of the year. But the reason why so many people enjoy this Christmas season, I think, is because deep down in every single one of us, whether we are Christian or not, religious or not, followers of Jesus or not, is that there is this deep sense of desire for the fulfillment of hope and for the fulfillment of purpose and meaning. Recently, I was listening to a podcast by a professor of biology. This is one of the things I like to do now um, recently, and my kids, they don't like this because I always, in the car, I, I turn on the podcast and they kind of get bored. But this is a professor of biology. He's not a Christian, um, per se, but he's talking about the topic of finding your purpose. And he's a professor of biology, so he's speaking from a biological, scientific perspective. And he's coming at it from a completely non-religious, non-Christian perspective and background. But he spoke so eloquently of this, this, this search for purpose that all of us are wired to have. So, so the way that he put it was that every single one of us is so unique in the configuration of our biology in terms of our DNA that, that in the history of the universe, nobody is like us, has been like us. And nobody will ever be like us, even if you have an identical twin or twins. We are so unique and that we were actually made for a purpose. Every single one of us was born to do something special. And I was thinking to myself as I was listening to this podcast, yes, you know, of course, and as a Christian, I was thinking, we find that true purpose, we find that true meaning under God as we come to understand who he is and what God has been about in this world. But so many of us settle for something less than that purpose for which we are made in our lives. And so even from this purely secular perspective, this scientific perspective, which all these things which he said was so insightful and true that what it shows me is that all of us, whether we are religious per se or not, or Christian or not, followers of Jesus or not, we are seeking for purpose and some kind of a deeper fulfillment. And I think collectively our society is looking for that too, which is why often we will turn to something like the season of Christmas and find deeper meaning in it, find deeper joy and fulfillment in it. And what I want to do today is to speak into that desire that all of us have, that to leverage this deep, deeper sense of our longing for meaning and fulfillment. But to do that, I think we have to move beyond just thinking about Christmas as merely as a symbol for us. It is that, and it can be that in a very powerful way, because it symbolizes, as I've mentioned, 
love, togetherness, unity, peace, joy, all of these good things. But there is so much more than just beauty in this story as a story. Now, it is powerful as a story, as a symbolic story. It's like a masterfully written screenplay or novel or movie. It just draws us out of ourselves and out of the circumstances that we're living in into something beautiful, something greater than us. But the story of Christmas is more than just a story. It is about history. It is about reality. It is about this world that we're living in. So the true power of Christmas lies not just in its being a beautiful story, but it's being rooted in history. And that's part of what I want to focus on today, history. So we're continuing this theme of meditating on the text from Luke, which we've had and heard these last uh, few weeks. This wonderful theme that Mark Anderson has set up for us, heavenly hope in a heavy world. And I want to just review quickly uh, what we've been through the last three weeks. So week one, facing the darkness, honestly facing the darkness that is both in our lives as well as in the world around us. That's part of this Advent sense of we actually have to face honestly that this world is less than what it ought to be. And that's part of receiving the hope that ultimately is ours as, as uh, Christians. Week two, we, we looked at the ray of hope, waiting when hope is not realized, waiting and waiting and waiting when hope is not realized. What is our response? Week three, last week, what a wonderful week that was as we worshiped together and heard of this theme, encountering God, God coming to us, God coming as one of us and belonging with us. And this week, week four, a new beginning and the title is A New Beginning in an Old Story. God invites us not just into a story, but into his story, his story. And today I'd like to start by focusing on someone that we don't often associate with Christmas, but he's actually very critical to this text and to the story of Christmas. And in fact, it's the, the person about whom this song that we just heard from Zechariah is about. Because that song that was read to us by Andrew is actually not primarily about Jesus, at least not the first half of it. It's about someone else. Did you catch that? It's about John, whom we call John the Baptist. And so what I want to do today, I want to talk a little bit about John and the significance of John for the story of Christmas, but not just for the story of Christmas, for the significance also for, of, of history, and then also for the significance for all of us. So the title of today's message is A New Beginning in an Old Story, and my hope is that we hear God inviting us into his story so here's a brief outline of uh, just what I'm going to do in the next uh, 25 minutes or so. Um, significance of history, I want to talk about that a little bit. And then I want to talk about the significance of John. And then finally, I want to retell that old story with a twist. And then I want to apply that to us today, okay? So first, a little bit of a defense and talking about history. Now, I know I think I have to talk about this because I feel... 
history gets kind of a bad reputation for a lot of us today because as soon as we hear history, we think of you know, old stodgy professors in university who talk about centuries ago, what happened 100 years ago or 500 years ago or maybe even 20 years ago, but, but we don't think that's relevant for us today. Or maybe we think about social studies classes where we have to memorize lots of dates and names and lists of dates and names and write them out for tests and exams. And so we think history is irrelevant for us. Now, I don't want to just talk about history as being significant in itself, which I think it is, because I think the more we understand history, the more we understand ourselves. But especially from the Christian perspective, history is especially significant because the central person in the Christian story is a historical person, more so than any other religious expression or faith, history is at the center of our beliefs. Not just the historical claims of this person, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago, but also the historical claims about this person, Jesus. So history really is at the core of what Christianity is about. If today some archaeologists or some historians are somehow able to discover or find out or prove that Jesus didn't die or didn't rise from the dead as his followers claim that he did, then the Christian faith today would radically have to change because that has been the claim of every orthodox believer since that first group of believers, that Jesus died historically and that Jesus was raised historically in history and that that is their claim, that that is what actually happened in reality. And that's been the belief from the first day till now. And Luke, from which our text was taken today, in particular is interested in history as a biographer or as a kind of a historian. He's more interested in history than some of the other gospel writers. So here's uh, a passage from the very beginning of Luke, which I'm going to read to you. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So I've highlighted here in the different colors, just all these emphases on the historical, on the events, on what has happened, right? You hear that emphasis on the eyewitnesses, on the things that have taken place, the things that have been accomplished is Luke's language, things that have been delivered to us as factual, as things that actually have happened so that you might have certainty about them, so that you won't have really kind of historical doubts that these act things actually took place. So Luke, of all the four gospel writers, is most interested in history. But history in the ancient world was also different than our understanding of history today. And so we do have to qualify that a little bit. And I want to talk about that because it's important. We live in the 21st century. So 
we're interested in history as being completely objective, and we want to talk about the details of the events themselves. But ancient history was not quite like that. They were interested in the details. They were interested in being somewhat objective. But the purpose of history, they understood, was to actually find a deeper meaning in that history, in that narrative of the events that were occurring. And so history was often mixed with philosophy. History was often mixed with narrative and rhetoric or persuasion. And for the biographers of Jesus, history was mixed with theology. They, not just wanted, they didn't just want to tell the story of the events of Jesus. They wanted to tell the story of the meaning of the events of Jesus' life. And that includes his birth. They were interested not just in the events themselves, but in the meaning of those events. So what does that mean as we read the Gospels, and as we read the Gospel of Luke in particular about the story of the birth of Jesus? Well, on the one hand, we cannot be overly excited about the little details in and of themselves. The details are there to teach us something about the meaning of Jesus' life and birth. They're not there just to tell us that those things happened for no other reason. And so sometimes someone will read a gospel, uh, the birth of the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus from the gospel of Luke and then from the gospel of Matthew, and they'll say, oh, there's differences here and there's even contradictions here. So therefore, that means the, the birth of the story of Jesus, the story of the birth of Jesus cannot be true because they're different. But you see, we're starting to misread the text and misunderstand the intent of the text when we do that. Because the authors of the Gospels are not just interested in the details themselves, but in why these details were remembered and recorded in um, the ancient world. But on the other hand, as I've been saying, the stories of the Gospels are not simply stories. Something happened. Something happened in that first century. An event happened in that first century in which the early believers, the followers, the early followers of Jesus, suddenly their eyes were opened. And that event was the resurrection, the bringing back to life from the dead of their master, their teacher, Jesus. Suddenly, it made them reflect on their entire knowledge of Jesus and their, their understanding of his life. And they started to think about and reflect on and remember and retell those stories in the community in those years after his death and resurrection and to retell and remember those stories within the communities every time they would meet. And so there's this process, we think, of this passing on of the tradition, the stories, the memories of who Jesus was and what he was about. And that eventually has come to us as the text of Scripture. But it all traces back to that one historical event, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one of the details that they remembered one of the most important details about the beginning of the story of Jesus that they remembered was this connection between Jesus and John. John. John the Baptist 
which our text was primarily about today. So who is John and why is he important to Jesus? Who is John and why is he important to Jesus? Why is he so important to Christmas that we have him read out today? Well, you know, if we look at the beginning of Jesus' story, the Christmas story, so-called, the birth of Jesus, each of the four Gospels, of the four Gospels, only two of them actually talk about the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. John goes right back to the beginning of the creation of the world in this kind of cosmic language, but doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus. And Mark begins with the adult ministry of Jesus. So only two of the Gospels narrate the birth of Jesus. But what all four of them have in common is Jesus' connection with John the Baptist. In other words, all of the Gospel writers are unanimous or agree that John is absolutely critical to understanding Jesus. John the Baptist is critical to understanding who Jesus is and what he was about. Why? Well, why is that? Let's look at this text that uh, we had read out in the first eight verses, and I'm not going to read it out just for the sake of interest of time. Um, But here in the colors, these phrases I've highlighted, Lord God of Israel redeemed his people, the house of the servant of David, the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, saved from our enemies to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Do you notice a theme, a common theme about all these highlighted portions that I just read out to you? You notice something in common about them. Can you see? Promise keeping, yeah. They're all about fulfillment. Fulfillment of the promises of old. God's promise to Israel, God's promise to his people, God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to David, God's promise through his prophets. Fulfillment of the promise. And what was that promise? That promise was that God would be with them as their God, and they would be his people, He would give them a land upon which to live, to dwell, that they would call their own. They would live in freedom in order to serve and worship and love him. And those two things, to serve, worship, and love him, and to look like him, to obey him, were tied with this other thing of them being able to live in this land, to dwell in this land. Those two things were tied together. So it was as if the the land was kind of spiritually sensitive, that if they weren't able to or they didn't continue to follow God and be righteous, the land itself would sense that and almost eject them from it. And that was, that's what happened in history, that that land was taken from them as they failed to live up to God's expectations for them and their agreement with God. And so the beginning of this story, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus, is actually not just a new story, but it's a new beginning in an old, old story that is now being fulfilled. It's a new beginning within an old story that's been going on for centuries. 
And as Mike Woods described for us so well a few weeks ago, they had been waiting a long time for this story to be fulfilled. And there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, perhaps more groups than we actually know of today. The Pharisees kind of resorted to a kind of meticulous following of the law as a way of bringing about the fulfillment of God. The Sadducees lived as they were part of the established culture, the established those in power in the temple. And so they were continuing to uphold the, the, the temple and its aristocracy its power structures. The Essenes, they withdrew from the, the majority of the Jewish people into the desert in order to live purely, uh, religiously pure lives in order that God might uh, bring about his kingdom again. They thought that they were the true Israel now. The Zealots lived in a kind of a political revolutionary tale. In fact, some of them would have and did assassinate Roman um, rulers in order to try to bring about God's kingdom again. Political revolutionaries, all different factions within historic Israel, anticipating what God was doing in the world. They didn't think that God was absent. There was this period of silence prophetically in which the prophets stopped speaking and everybody kind of was wondering, where is God working? And different people resorted to different understandings of what God was doing. But what we have to appreciate is that everybody, every Jewish person was looking for the fulfillment of this story. Whether you're one of these groups or not, every Jewish person would have been nurtured in the stories of God coming to his people in Egypt through Moses and establishing a people uh, in the land. And they were all waiting for that fulfillment to happen. Which is why this song from Zechariah is so filled with the language of fulfillment of the promises of old. They were still waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. So what John's birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth does is it links the story of Jesus to the story of Israel, the story of Jesus to history. So it has to start with John the Baptist. John, who comes, and everybody recognizes him. Everybody who is a Jewish person recognizes him. Because he comes dressed like a prophet. He comes sounding like a prophet. He's got the lifestyle of a prophet. And he speaks with authority of a prophet. Everybody knows the silence has been broken. The prophets are back in John the Baptist. And they all flock to him, wanting to hear a word from God. What is so wonderful about the Christmas story is that it is not just a story, but it is history. And John the Baptist is a crucial part of that link with history. So in the history books, Josephus in particular, who was an ancient historian, he was a Jewish person, but uh, working 
not just for the Jewish people at that time. He records something about Jesus, but historians today, and with some reason, they think that the, the text about Jesus, which describes Jesus, was somewhat tampered with throughout history, and there is some reason to believe that. But Josephus also talks about John the Baptist, and there's no historian today who would say that that text has been tampered with. Everyone recognizes that John the Baptist was a historical figure. And so what John the Baptist does partly for us today is it links, it, it, it grounds Jesus Christ in the history of the ancient world, the history of the Jewish people in ancient Israel. And so what that does for us is we know, if we know that God has come into our world in history like this, then there is real hope for us. If God can come into this world in history, in real history, as real as you and I, standing, sitting here, as real as the chairs that you're sitting on today, then God can come into your world, into my world, and hope can be real. It's not just something that we're thinking and wishing for. It's not just a feeling that we have. But hope in the Christian understanding is real. It's real. It's grounded in something outside of ourselves. I think that's the, the truest message of Christmas. Allow me to share uh, one small way of how God has done this for me, um, ground his hope in my life in a very real way. And it's just one story. I share it with you, uh, not to put the focus on myself, but to share with you an, as an illustration of how sometimes God can work. In 2016, I was on a prayer retreat uh, during my birthday. Uh, so I went to Westminster Abbey. Uh, this is the Benedictine Monastery in mission, so you have it up there on the slide. I, I tried to find a picture with snow on it because uh, I went in the winter time. So I went because I wanted to pray and to discern. I was going through this period of discernment in my life. Um, what was God doing in my life? And what was God, I was pastoring in this church at that time, what was God doing in this church that I've been pastoring in for 13 years. And I felt there was kind of a decision point coming in my life and also in the life of the church. And the monks in this monastery, they worship five times a day. So one morning I woke up early and uh, I was there for several days and I, I joined them in worship one morning. It was this beautiful service. They're just singing a cappella uh, music. I think it was in Latin. I didn't understand it, but it was just beautiful choral music. But what spoke to me the most was actually the passage that was read during that service, which was from Joshua chapter 1. And I remember journaling about it and writing it down. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that my Moses, that Moses my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. 
And as I was meditating and thinking about and praying through this decision point in my life, whether to go forward with it or not, that passage spoke to me as a kind of an affirmation. God was kind of saying to me, I felt, don't be afraid to go outside of your comfort zone. Don't be afraid to do things that you are afraid to naturally in your own self to do because I will be with you. And I took that to heart. And I go, oh, yeah, that's a message that speaks to me, something that I needed. But that's not all. So later that afternoon, I returned home. It was my birthday, so I celebrated with my wife, Grace. And uh, she had a little gift for me, and then we celebrated. She had a card. She's very thoughtful in her card writing. And she wrote this little message to me. And then at the bottom of that card, guess what passage she quoted? Joshua 1, 6. Be strong and courageous, just as I was with Moses. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. She had never written that verse to me before and has never written it to me since. Uh, I'd never heard that verse in the lectionary before. And in fact, it's not in the common lectionary, so I looked for it. So somehow it's uh, maybe part of the special lectionary of these Benedictine monasteries. But the very time that she was probably writing that card was the time I was hearing it being read in the monastery that morning. So in the monastery, read by monks and being written by my wife and read by me later that day on a card, a birthday card, of all the passages in Scripture, you know, how could it be? What are the chances of that happening? Well, for me, that, I took that again. This God was really wanting to affirm and speak to me these things which I was kind of doubting myself and whether I should go forward with this decision or not. And, and it was an encouragement to me. And eventually what that, that, that time led was to actually my entering into a PhD program later on, then and later on, several years later, even to coming here to Granville Chapel. So I literally wouldn't be standing here before you except for what had happened during that time, that day that I felt the Lord speak to me and affirm me these ways and encourage me to continue to trust in him, not in my own self, but to trust in him. And this is just one illustration of a way that God has changed my life, has spoken into my life. And if any of you have walked with the Lord in any length of time, I'm sure you have many stories like this in which you know that God has changed your life in the course of your life, and he's been with you. And if you don't have a history of walking with the Lord, you can ask some of those here who do, and I'm sure they'll be happy to tell you stories like this. And I share it again just as an illustration of how I felt that the Lord was walking with me in that time. Some of the stories that I have are more spectacular. Some of them are less spectacular. But the point is that God has entered into human history. And he wants to enter into our stories, into your story and into my story. Okay? Application time. So, Israel had physical enemies, political enemies. 
That's why their prayer, Zechariah, that song went like that. And this part of it says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Israel had reason to be fearful. They had these political enemies around them throughout much of their history. And for Israel, the source of that fear was their political enemies that prevented them from entering into this experience of peace. Well, we don't have so many uh, physical, political enemies today for the most part. What are some of our enemies? What are our sources of fear? We may not have political sources of fear or, or, or physical sources of fear, fear, but another way of asking this question is, what is robbing us of our peace? What is robbing us of our peace? Petra shared um, a few weeks ago about peace, about shalom. And peace is not just something that's external. It's not just the absence of conflict, the absence of conflict externally, but it has to do with a holistic entering of peace, a holistic experience of peace. So it has to do with internal as well as external. Every sphere of life, what is robbing you of entering into that kind of shalom. Well, one of the disruptors, I think, of peace today is just anxiety. We live in a world full of anxiety. Anxiety is like low-grade fear. Low-grade fear. It's not the kind of fear that makes you run the other direction. It's not the kind of fear that may spikes your adrenaline and gets you, uh, your heart racing as if your life was depending on that situation. But it's the kind of fear that will grate at you, kind of always on the back of your mind, the kind of fear that may keep you up at night or may wake you up in the middle of the night and keep you from going back to sleep. It's the kind of fear that you have throughout the day that's always on your mind. Maybe anxiety about your health, maybe anxiety about your performance, maybe anxiety about your finances, the anxiety about your work, these kinds of things that often, often are on the back of our minds. What are you anxious about? What is keeping you from experiencing peace and robbing you of peace? And I recognize that some people live with anxiety disorders and have this dis. dis a debilitating sense of anxiety that prevents them from even doing daily routines. And I, so I recognize that this can be a very complex issue. But I want to speak to what most of us experience most of the time in terms of this deeper anxiety that we kind of just live with on a daily basis. And I want to suggest that wherever there is anxiety... There's also an opportunity. The Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, but instead pray about everything. Do not be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And I don't think this is the kind of prayer that just ignores the sources of our anxiety, that ignores the circumstances that we're living in as if everything will just be fine, somehow magically, that we can just ignore that all that stuff that's going on. In fact, biblical prayer has 
a lot of room for lament. And lament is acknowledging that brokenness, acknowledging the sources of our fear and anxiety, and then continuing to live with it and holding on to it, but holding on to the fact that God is in charge even more. And so biblical prayer is not just ignoring the circumstances in which we're living and kind of having this attitude of ignorance about things, but seems to me biblical prayer is really about acknowledging the brokennesses and the pains of our lives and yet still holding on to hope and faith in God. And what is the source of that hope? What is the source of that hope for the Christian? That Jesus is real, that Jesus has come, and Jesus has promised that he will come and he will make things right for eternity. The early church, that was, I mean, they, they had it pretty tough too, that first century. I'm sure there were lots of anxieties on top of physical fears and physical suffering, and yet they're able to write Paul to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer bring everything to the Lord. Joy to the world. Why? The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. The king is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. They've been longing for God to come back as their king. And that's what Christmas is about, that God has, in fact, come in the person of Jesus. Not just, not just physically, politically, but internally, spiritually. God has come not just to fix the symptoms of the problem, but the root of the problem itself which really is a human heart. God knew that. God knew that Israel, what Israel really needed was not just a political solution, not just a, a military solution, but actually a changing of their heart. And that's what Jesus provided for them and for us. He provides for us a king whom we can truly follow. And if there's a king and what does that make us? Potentially makes us his followers. That's what gives us as Christians hope. And so I submit to you, how do we find true joy, true peace, true fulfillment in this world? It is by following this king and giving our lives to this king. No matter what our circumstances, he will meet you where you are at. He will give to you what you need, but he asks us to give back to him what rightfully belongs to him as our king, which is our lives, and he will return to us fulfillment and joy and peace. Let's pray. I want to invite you to give your life over to this king. Maybe for the first time today, maybe for the thousandth time today, he invites you to be his follower, to receive him as your king, as the one that you will submit your life to. He will give you 
those things that your heart truly seeks. Forgiveness, fulfillment, purpose, joy, peace, all of these things. He will. He has done it and he will do it. He has come in history. He invites you into this relationship as his follower. Father, we give you thanks for the story of Christmas. It's such a powerful story of you coming into this world in a very real way. Not just as someone who is an idea or is a hope or a dream, but someone who's grounded in the dirty stable in that little town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago in the form of a human being, real. You did it once, and you've done it throughout history for people as they have turned their lives to you over and over again. And you promised to do that for us today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that by your spirit you're present to us and you continue to speak to us. And so, Lord, we pray for those who are hearing this message today and maybe they're wrestling with something in their lives. We pray that your power, that the, spirit of, the power of your spirit might speak to them and minister to them and, and give them what they need. That above all, that you would give them a willingness and a desire to want to know you more and to submit their lives May we all submit our lives to you more, to follow you as our king, as the master of our lives, creator of this universe. Amen. Amen.